You're listening to a Sunday sermon from Seven Mile Road Church in Melrose, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. To check out more about us, go to sevenmilemelrose.com. So we're spending summer in the Psalms. If you can look at the graphic up here. The Psalms are like the sun in that they warm us. If you're feeling dry, you're feeling distant from God, spiritually you're feeling empty, we would say go to the Psalms, read them, pray through them, think on them, do your worship through them, and let them get inside and warm you. So we've come together this summer to the Psalms to warm together. But Psalm 2, which we're preaching this morning, which is what we're doing, is like the Psalm in that it illuminates all the rest of the Psalms. And more than just the rest of the Psalms, it shines its big, bright, and massive light on the rest of Scripture. The message of Psalm 2 is the message of all of Scripture. The starting point of wonder and excitement and awe and freedom is in this psalm. And the big idea of this psalm is this, that God has a forever kingdom, and inside that kingdom is a forever king. So that's what we're doing this morning. King David's writing about this these big, king, universal promises. And he says a lot here. This, as a matter of fact, is my favorite psalm. I'll do my best. The reality is no one is really qualified to deal with these things. But what I want to first do is start in a little bit more of a unique way, maybe a unique way for me, and cast this psalm inside of its bigger context. Because what I want to do is preach this in a Christ-centered way, and say that Psalm 2 is actually about Jesus Christ. Now, if you're new to the Bible and you don't know how all the ways in which the Old Testament and the New Testament are connected together, this would be good for you. It's also good for us who have been in Scripture a long time and are looking at Scripture, and we get to see these unique links that put the Old Testament and the New Testament together. How do you get from King David to King Jesus? Is it fair to preach Jesus Christ out of Psalm 2 when David wrote it a thousand years before Christ. How could it be about Jesus? So I want to do that this morning. I think it's helpful for all of us. If you were to go to the Old Testament, you go to 2 Samuel 7, you'd see this promise made by God given to David. It says, The Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Now look at this. Your house, your kingdom, will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. So this is the promise from which David even gets his inspiration for writing Psalm 2. This is where it comes from. The first part of it is easy, straightforward promise. Pertains to David. The kings that come from David's own literal body will be blessed by God and God will be with them. But verse 16 is talking about a much bigger aspect of the promise. It says that God 
promises David his kingdom will rule forever, in front of God's face forever. The throne where the king sits will be forever. Well, David died, all David's sons died, so how does this work? Now, of course, we have the New Testament. If we didn't, what a massive cliffhanger. We've been preaching through Luke, so I'm going to take you there real quickly, and then we'll jump to the psalm. If you look at Luke chapter 131, look at this promise that God gives to Mary. He says, you will conceive a son, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This is the exact same Second Samuel promise. But this time it's specific to Jesus. Jesus is this king who has a kingdom without end. Jesus is the promise to David. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. So it is that David knew without fully knowing that in writing Psalm 2, he was writing about God's king, Jesus Christ. The Bible is this one big integrated whole that gets us between the Testaments, that gets us from the Old Testament promises into the person of Jesus Christ and beyond into his kingdom forever. So this is the context in which David is penning Psalm 2. And while it was fresh in our minds from reading it, I wanted to bring you to those verses in the Bible to see that link. And then from there, we can jump into this verse by verse. There's four sections in Psalm 2. I've got this into four R's. I don't typically do this, but they are rebellion, the response, the reign, the refuge. Those are the four parts we're going to do this morning. Should take about two hours. <laughs> On the screen, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. If we were to rephrase verse 1, change it from a question into a statement, you could say, the nations rage, the people's plot, it's in vain. This is a summary of global history through time. The nations, governments, through their ever-changing global power shifts, they are all angry, they all strive, they all scheme, they all lay their plans, and it is a complete and total waste of time. Have you ever planned something out and then been frustrated by the outcome? There are two types of people in this world. People who, sure, they can play a board game here and there, and then people who would kill their neighbor to win a board game. I am the former. My wife's entire family is the latter. She's not here so I can get into detail. I play a board game here and there. My wife's family dresses up in face paint and warrior dress before they play each other. And then when they're done, everybody leaves the table upset and angry at each other. This is the life I live now. If you've had to deal with this in your life, then you understand. People who can sit and play a board game for five hours and lick their lips and just bask in the glory of crushing the hopes and dreams of their enemies. 
I try to get into it. I try to plan out my next move, the next 10 moves. I give it everything I got. And then as it always typically goes, Laura or her brother crush all my plans. They destroy all my work of trying to get ahead. Everything I wanted to do, they destroy. I always seem to get crushed. This is the nations of the earth and the people in their board game approach to life. They plan their next move. They're starving for happiness. They war for resources they want. But none of it ever does work or ever will work because they're striving and scheming and plotting, the psalmist says, is actually against God and is anointed. And all striving and scheming and plotting against God is an exercise in futility. So the word and the idea here is rebellion. Rebellion is a way of explaining world history from God's perspective. This is what we're being told by the psalmist. Have you ever wondered why people can't just chill out and stop fighting each other and stop trying to get over on each other all the time? It's maddening. Why are people so upset and angry? Why do they need to go to war with each other and fight over silly things? It's because the nations and the people are against God and against his anointed. If you have a hard time understanding road rage and world conflicts and dictators, it's all right here. This is why they war against each other. They actually hate God. Now, we can see this in the words that David uses. He says that they set themselves, meaning that they take a stand, and then he uses these words, bonds and cords, as a way of describing how they view God's governance. So it's not that God is viewed as good and right or acknowledged as the worthy king. He's hated. His laws are rejected. His commands are a nuisance. His very presence to the nations are like bonds that bind and cords that strangle. Now, what we know from the Gospels is that this rebellion reached its peak in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And Peter, in preaching in, in the beginning of the book of Psalms, Acts chapter 4, it's at the, this psalm is at the forefront of his mind, and he quotes this exact verse, and he says that Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people, they plotted against your anointed one, and they crucified Jesus Christ. This was an important psalm to the earliest disciples. This was the final blow of the rebellion, their final attempt to break God's bonds and burst his cords. But Christ was resurrected. Their plans and their schemes could not have been more frustrated. Their actions were in vain. And this is why in the next verse, we actually see God laughing. This is God's response. We move to response, verse 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, I've set my king on Zion. This is a situation of he who laughs last, laughs the loudest. The resurrection, the fact that God set Jesus Christ and put him on his holy hill makes the futility of God's enemies a silly spectacle. 
Now, because our kids are with us, I'm going to risk a, I'm going to risk trying to explain this for them, right? So, if you've seen the Mario movie, raise your hand. Big hit now. Big hit this movie. Big bad King Bowser, the enemy of the good, is this large and scary turtle thing with spikes on his back, and he breathes fire, and he's destroying the world all to get his prize, his peaches. That's his plan. Well, at the end, Mario wins. Of course he does. He's the good guy. He's a great plumber. He's the rightful king of sorts. And in Bowser's defeat, what they do is they make him eat this shrinking mushroom. And Bowser eats the mushroom, and he becomes so small. Big, bad Bowser, he's made little. He can fit into your hand. And when he blows his fire, it's just a little puff of smoke. And if he ever tried to punch you, it would just be a tickle. When he talks, his mouse, he squeaks like a mouse. And you look at him, and it's funny. Because he had all these plans to rule. But he's just a little tiny turtle thing that can now fit in a little cage. He can't hurt anybody now. This is how God views the enemies of his plan. This is how God sees the raging enemies of his anointed king. If the little enemies are being serious, they're to be laughed at. But the laughter, the mockery of his little enemies only goes so far. This is not a happy laughter. God responds to their attempts to rule in his place with, it says, wrath, with terror, with fury, because a wrongful claim to the throne is serious business. And it's no fun to be Bowser when you're made to be so small. God's response to his enemies is, as the psalmist states, terrifying. Now, what I want to do, there's this powerful image in verse 6. If you look at it on the screen, David, through the Holy Spirit, he states that God has set his king on Zion. Now, Zion, whenever you come across that word in your Bible, it's the city of David. It's the city of the king. This is where God's presence emanates from. But this setting spoken of here, he has set. It's a Hebrew expression for casting an image in a mold. So it's a picture of an imprint. Think of a coin with an impression of a president's image on it. God calls his king my king. God puts his image on his king. And his king dwells in his place. These word pictures that you see in your Bible only are really fully understood when you can see past King David and onto King Jesus. King Jesus is the perfect image, the holy imprint, God in the flesh. Now, so we see God's response to the raging, the scheming, the plotting of his rebel enemies. And his response is this confident laughter because he has placed his king on his throne in the universe. And then we move on and we see the appointed reign. These are verses 7 through 9. I'll tell of the decree. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. As of me, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Has anyone ever inherited anything cool? Some of us in our houses might have some knickknacks, some odds and ends that we took from a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent. 
My whole life, my father had this immaculate 1979 Triumph motorcycle. It was shining blue and silver, and he was meticulous in his care of it. Meticulous, kind of like Glenn. And my whole life, he told me, this is yours. You can have it. Well, as it turns out, I barely changed the oil in my car. I don't clean or care for a single mechanical thing in my possession. I beat my stuff to death. And also, as it comes to find out, I really don't want to die on a motorcycle. So I told them this, and instead, he sold it. Motorcycle lovers in the room are like dying over this and probably lost a little bit of respect for me. Motorcycles are cool. I was probably dumb for not taking that bike. But who has ever been promised to inherit the ends of the earth? These are the kinds of wild statements in the Bible that we just see and just ho-hum over. The decree, the plan, the promise that goes to the king is that all the nations will become his property all the way to the ends of the earth. This is the promise that touches on David, goes through David, and is landed on Jesus Christ. The New Testament helps us understand how this promise is revealed in the person of Christ in many ways. I'll put one on the screen. This is in Hebrews chapter 1. It says, in these last days he has spoken by his son. Watch how Psalm 2 shines through these words. Appointed his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Later on it says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Notice that last part is a direct quotation from Psalm 2. The point being that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come into his reign and rule. He's the, heir, he's the heir of all things. He's the image of God, the radiance of God's glory, and all of creation is his possession. Now for the rebels, they get his response. They see the appointed reign of the Son, and it's the exact opposite of what they hoped for. The very opposite thing that they wanted is what they get. They wanted to break God's bonds and snap his cords. They wanted to be free from his power and rule, and instead, instead, they get smashed by that very thing. There's these videos on YouTube you can watch of a tire just rolling over common household items and crushing them. For the first three times, it's like kind of soothing. It's weird. It runs over light bulbs and toothpaste tubes and things like that, soda cans, and it gets old, constant crushing. No one really needs to wonder what happens when a truck tire runs over a watermelon, but so these things exist on YouTube. In the same way, it's not hard for us to envision what happens when you take a rod of iron, what the psalmist says, and smash it into pottery. It's this ancient image and signal of the strength of Christ in the weakness of his enemies. Now, once you know this, that he has this rod of iron, I'm made of clay, most of us would turn our fight response into flight. Get me out of here. 
I am gone. You have a rod of iron. I am made of clay. This brings us to our last section, the refuge. Verse 10 says, now, therefore, kings, be wise. Be be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. How well known is the saying that you can run, but you can't hide? I've heard some of our kids saying this as they're chasing each other out front, running through traffic on Green Street with pointy sticks. When it comes to God, it is one of the truest things that you can say. There is no refuge away from God, only refuge in him. You can't run away from God. You can only run to him. Now, for those who don't love God, this lack of options is frustrating. We who love our independence and our choices, God is the great frustrator of our plans. But the psalmist lays it all out here, and he reaches into the height of living wisdom, which is basically fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is folly to reject the Lord in pride. It is wisdom to approach the Lord with a holy awe and reverence. So this is how we're going to end this today. The last section of the psalm is an invitation. It's an invitation stated in old school, ancient context, ancient language. This is the Bible. It's this image of a king on a throne in a majestic hall, surrounded by powerful guard, and everything is shining, and he's in charge, and he's terrifying in what he actually is. All the ends of the earth are in his hand. He is the image of God. So the question is, who can approach this king? We start with the anger, the perishing part first. The psalmist draws our attention to that reality. Most people do not see themselves as enemies of God because they wouldn't actually say they hate God. I was in this camp. That was me years ago just living life, doing my own thing. I wasn't worried about a kingdom or a king. I would have said, yeah, I'm not right with God because I knew my sin. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I loved my sin. But I didn't hate God. At least I wouldn't have said it in those words. The psalmist says his wrath is quickly kindled. Well, why would his wrath be kindled at me? I'm not doing anything to him. This is how I would have thought. Most of us wouldn't say with our mouths that we want to burst his bonds and snap his cords. We don't see ourselves as warring kings storming his castle. We just think that we are good neighbors to each other. He has his land over there. I have my nice little plot of land here. It's all good. We're neighbors. But that's not how life works. God is not our neighbor. Jesus Christ is to be served with fear and approached with joyful trembling or we perish. Let that sit for a second because we, we don't hear those words a lot. Jesus Christ is to be approached with fear and joyful trembling or we perish. Now, what about asylum seekers, right? The psalmist says, 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's a common expression in Christian circles to think of the concept of asking Jesus into your heart, into your life. And I won't quibble over application. It's true. New birth of God happens in here. God in us. You die to yourself. You're alive to God. That is true. The Holy Spirit does that work. But another way to say it is the way the psalmist says it here, that the King, Jesus Christ, is a refuge that you can get into. You can go into him. You crawl into his hand. He is like a castle that once inside is an impenetrable fortress. He is a safe refuge, and that's where the blessing is. Blessed is the word the psalmist used, and that's now, it. blessed, I'm blessed, is a familiar um, way of speaking in our own culture. When an athlete wins the game and they're on TV and they're being interviewed and the person says, how does it feel to have won the whole thing? A lot of times they'll say, I'm so blessed. I can't believe it. I'm so happy. I'm overwhelmed. I can't believe this happened to me. And the only word you can grab a hold of at that time is, I'm so blessed. It's the right way to say it. That word is the forever future of those who lay down their arms and kiss the sun and embrace the king. They get inside him as the refuge inside his person. They are forever blessed, forever happy. This is what we were made for. The created order is a forever kingdom. Inside of the kingdom is a forever king. And you and me were made to be Jesus Christ's forever people, blessed forever. Would you believe that to be true and pray with me this morning?